So what is Russia's game in the Balkans and why should the region respond in that way? That's what I want to focus in my remarks. You're listening to The Balkan Circle, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mary Neuberger and I'm a professor in the Department of History here at the University of Texas. I'm also the director for the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies, and the chair of Slavic and Eurasian Studies. And I am really pleased to welcome you to our first Fall 2020 Balkan Circle. We also had a Balkan Circle last year. It was our first year, and that was in person. This is our first virtual Balkan Circle, given the circumstances. And although we're sad to not be meeting with all of you in person, I think this gives us certain opportunity to bring in other people from other institutions in the U.S. and abroad. And I'm going to hand this off to my co-host, and that's Kirill Abramov, who's really the brains behind this whole operation. Hello, Dr. Neuberger. Thank you very much. It's a particular pleasure on this gloomy Austin rainy day to continue with an initiative and with a fantastic speaker and fantastic guests for all things Balkan. Today, we have a very prominent guest of ours that we began the series with. Uh, it is Dr. Dimitri Bechev, who is the director of the European Policy Institute, a think tank based in Sofia, Bulgaria. His book titled Rival Power, Russia in Southeastern Europe, which was published by Yale University Press in 2017, explores Russia's geopolitical role in the Balkans, Greece, Cyprus, and Turkey. It is my particular pleasure to virtually host you, Dr. Bechev. The floor is yours. Thank you so much. I'm really thankful for this generous introduction and for the opportunity to speak to, to you. Now, on the 15th of March, President Alexander Vucic of Serbia had this press conference in Belgrade. Of course, today he is in the White House signing the deal with Kosovo. But on the 15th of March, he was in the Serbian capital and he had this memorable press conference where, first of all, he announced the introduction of a lockdown. But also he had some harsh words to say about Europe, saying that European integration is a fairy tale. So just sweet talking from officials in Brussels and the big capitals and, and no action. Whereas China was helping Serbia and doing its best to support it in this difficult moment, including with a badly needed healthcare equipment and personal protection uh, equipment uh, as well. And it was not just China, uh, which obviously grabbed the headlines with Vucic hugging the Chinese aid delivering to, to Belgrade and kissing the Chinese flag, but also Russia. Indeed, he had one conversation with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and a couple of weeks later, 87 healthcare staff from Russia and also people affiliated with the Ministry of Emergency Situations, uh, structure of the Russian Federation government, were flying into the Batainitsa airport and delivering medical supplies and also expert staff to help Serbia contain COVID-19. And for those of us who um, study Serbia and the Serbian-Russian connection, and it's not an accidental place, but it's been the site of the regular exercises the Serbian military has had with the Russians since 2014. And also the site where the Russians delivered in early years humanitarian assistance 
it was the same infrastructure of uh, a Russian support. The Russian official uh, news agency TASS announced that much of the aid will be distributed through various uh, regional uh, centers, including the Humanitarian Assistance Center, the same Ministry of Emergency Situation established in the city of Nish in southeast Serbia. That's been discussed by Western security experts and officials for years on end, seeing it as the kind of the focal point of uh, Russian intelligence operations in the region, whether that's the case or not, remains debatable. But Russia wanted to plant its flag as well after China was appearing to be stealing the show uh, in Serbia. Now, the second episode happened not in Serbia, but in Bosnia, where the Bosnian Croats uh, leadership uh, essentially invited in the month of May the Russian specialists, the Russian teams from Serbia to help disinfect medical facility in the divided city of Mostar, which caused havoc in, in Sarajevo with all kinds of questions floating. What are they up to? What, what is the connection between the Croat AZZ uh, in, in Bosnia? And why are the Russians appearing all, all of a sudden? Ultimately, there was a decision not to let them in, uh, taken by the Bosniak uh, Minister of, of Security, but also that illustrated how controversial Russian presence is in the region. But this first and the second episodes were mostly to be expected. What was not expected was the strange turnaround around COVID in Russian-Serbian relations in July. In the middle of July, with cases mounting, the Serbian government decided to reintroduce some restrictive measures, which of course triggered protests in downtown Belgrade, and we saw some scenes of unrest, heavy-handed police actions, of course, all kinds of, of havoc in the streets. Of course, uh, the government tried to push back with the help of its loyal media, the tabloids and the TV channels in Serbia. But what came as a surprise to many was that the line those pro-Vucic tabloids took was heavily anti-Russian. So all of a sudden, Serbia, supposed to be Russia's closest ally in the region, kind of started pushing the line that those people protesting in the streets of Belgrade are puppeteered by something called the Russian deep state. It was not Putin, for sure, doing it. It was Russian security officials, again, the deep state, working behind his back, trying to destabilize the Serbian government, fomenting unrest and pushing Serbia towards the abyss. Again, this was not something that Vucic said directly. He didn't pick up this fight, uh, certainly. But the pro-Vucic mouthpieces, which shaped the, the public discourse in Serbia, took a very hard anti-Russian direction. Which is interesting, though, unexpected. Why should the, the friendliest country in the Balkans go that route? Why should it be using Russia as a as a boogeyman to score points domestically, but also to maybe do overtures to the West. And again, this goes back to illustrate the difficult connection and, and the ambiguous relationship between governments in the region with the Russians. At some point, the Russians, Russian foreign policy is an ally. Serbia, because will be a good example. But at other points in time, 
Russia is being instrumentalized as means to scare domestic public opinion and also to get geopolitical mileage in the West. And there is nobody more experienced in this game than the Serbian leadership, obviously, even if Vucic was not involved in, in this case. So what is Russia's game in the Balkans and why should the region respond in that way? That's what I want to focus in my remarks. Now, if you go back to the annexation of Crimea, the heyday of concern about Russian revisionism in Europe, the view that dominated headlines in the West was that Russia was staging a geopolitical comeback, that it, it was not just intent of recuperating its influence in the former Soviet space, but also it was pushing in other regions much more closer to what we could describe as, as core uh, Europe. In a hearing uh, in early 2015, before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the then Secretary of State, John Kerry, put Serbia, Montenegro, Kosovo in the same basket uh, with Moldova, Transnistria, Georgia, uh, and the like. He said all those countries are in the firing line. So Russia was trying to reestablish its hegemony, not just over its near abroad, but also uh, in, in the Western Balkans. And that was the feeling that, that Russia is back. The second theme that permeated Western discourse both on both sides of the Atlantic was that geopolitics was back in the sense that the Balkans, having been the apple of this world in the continent's politics in the late 19th and early 20th century, was again contested terrain. It was, of course, the centennial of the First World War in 2014 with a lot of books coming out, so a lot of commentary pieces. That, uh, look, in 2013, nobody conceived of a war in Europe, but now it's not inconceivable, and the history is repeating itself. But this time, it's not just Russia, but as well as there's Turkey, and China was not on the radar. But certainly the idea is that there is this uh, arena of great power politics, and the Balkans are very much into the focal point. This is, this is the one view of the region that very much defines thinking. For a long time, if you look at the US, the Balkans was not an item of interest. But once it got into this geopolitical frame, there was, especially in the think tank circuit and the commentariat, uh, there was a bit of renewed interest. I remember a prominent columnist saying that from first foreign war after inauguration in early 2017 would be in the Balkans. Again, history is, is coming back. So that was... This one view that was making the rounds back then with Russia very much at the center. And it's very much clashed with an earlier view that was very much prevalent in Europe in the 2000s, especially in, in Germany as a core country that Russia is there, it has its own interests and uh, it's trying to, of course, recuperate some of its lost influence in Eastern Europe. But ultimately, there are ways to cooperate with it. In this paradigm, the Balkans could be seen as a site where the West, which is the dominant player, and the, and the Russians could do business together. They could build pipelines, they could uh, establish various modes of commercial cooperation. And that, that was a view shared, certainly, in, in those big European countries. Italy and, and Germany would be good examples, but, but also others. But not unlike the perspective the Obama administration had on, on Russia during the so-called reset. Not necessarily related to the Balkans, but also um, on, on other global issues, from the Iranian sanctions in 2010 
to nuclear cooperation so that Russia could be a responsible stakeholder in, in regional but also global politics. We have those two extreme views. My view is somewhere in, in the middle, in the sense that I don't, obviously, having written a book called Rival Power, I don't buy in the idea that Russia is a benign actor and it's non-revisionist. In fact, my whole stick is about how Russia is trying to challenge Western institutions and West, Western states in this vulnerable corner of Europe. But on the other hand, what I see in the Balkans is quite a bit of uh, the tail wagging the dog, as opposed to uh, countries like Serbia and its neighbors in the Western Balkans, also Bulgaria, Greece, and so on and so forth. So rather than see them as objects of geopolitical influence, I see a lot of agency in those places. So those governments, political and business elites, have been able on many occasions to manipulate Russian foreign policy, to bring Russia in for their own intensive purposes. And the same goes about other international actors, including the EU and the West writ large. So what, what, what my approach of, uh, differs from what is out there in books, especially in think tank output and, and commentary, is this emphasis on local responses, local perspectives, and local political dynamics and how those external actors feature into the local scene. But it's more of a bottom-up perspective on, on international and, and regional politics. What I want to do now is look very briefly at the evolution of, of Russian foreign policy in the Balkans in the 1990s, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, and also then move to the various issues at stake. First of all, security. Russia, at the end of the day, is a, is a big security player. Second of all, to discuss Russian economic presence and how it bears on politics uh, in the region. And lastly, to consider... Russian influence on societies. Others take issue with uh, the notion of, of soft power. It's appropriate to what Russia is up to in the region. So going back to the 1990s, obviously that's the time of the collapse of Yugoslavia. That's the single most important geopolitical event in the region, also arguably in European politics. You did see levels of violence unprecedented since the end of the Second World War on European soil. Russia was involved early on. That was the first test for post-Soviet Russia's foreign policy. From 1992 onwards, virtually the first day, Soviet Union. But what is really essential there is that Russia had a very difficult balancing act to maintain. On the one hand, that was the time when it wanted to forge an alliance of sorts with the West, with big European powers and the US to cooperate. And the Balkans was a test case there. And on the other hand, it wanted to assert its independence and its autonomy at a time when it was dire straits domestically with the economic transition and, and various waves of political upheavals. Remember, in 1993, tanks stormed the then Russian legislature and there was constitutional change and, uh, and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of going on inside Russia itself at the time. But Russia was there on the ground in former Yugoslavia, and the way to assert your role in former Yugoslavia was by cooperating with Slobodan Milosevic and the Bosnian Serbs. But that was not the coupling. 
there were many instances where the relationship was pretty much dysfunctional with the Serbs using Russia as a cover and trying to drag Russia into conflicts with the West that the Russian diplomats didn't want to get into necessarily. They wanted to avoid a situation. But even though there were risks, the clearest being the war in Kosovo, where Russia took a very hard stance, had to back down uh, under Western pressure, put, put troops on the ground uh, in, in Pristina airports, risking a standoff or confrontation with, with NATO, but ultimately finding a way to de-escalate. There were also gains made into this period. And one gain was the establishment of the so-called contact group for Yugoslavia. In 1994, after Russia mediated one of the crises around Sarajevo. So Russian diplomacy was not necessarily unsuccessful. It actually scored some points, obtained this symbolic recognition, and was able to establish military presence in Bosnia and ultimately Kosovo through cooperation with the West. If we go back in time from today's perspective, it's inconceivable that Russian troops should be serving in a NATO mission. But that was the case in Bosnia, and that was the case later in Kosovo. Resolution 1244 establishing the status of Kosovo and and UNMIC was another instance of uh, cooperation with the Russians. So this tense relationship put to the test many times actually actually survived. And it was a mixed bag for the Russians. The narrative that it was all about humiliation doesn't really hold against the actual records. Even if Russia, when it tried to play hardball, ultimately found itself on the back foot in the 1990s. So that was the first episode, this Yeltsin era, involvement in the Balkans, as a stepping stone for claiming a place in the new European security infrastructure. It was never about the Balkans itself. It was about Russia's place in European political and security affairs. Second phase uh, comes when Putin gets into office. I, I think he did see the Balkans as a liability from the Yeltsin era. There was nothing to be gained. Of course, he wanted to cooperate with the West. There was the the new reset, but it was all about post-9-11 cooperation in Afghanistan and Russia-US relations uh, in this uh, golden age when Putin appeared to be moderately pro-Western. The Balkans was a sideshow and and Putin was the person who in 2003 actually decided to call off Russian peacekeepers, peacekeeping missions in the Balkans. He brought back troops. So after 2003, Russia has not had forces on the ground, unlike the former Soviet space. There are no troops formally uh, deployed in the region. The only time the Russian military appears in Southeast Europe is when it trains together with Serbia. And that was a turning point that went unnoticed because the agenda had moved on and the Balkans were not very as visible in 2003 as they were in 1993. And Russia was not to return until the middle of the 2000s. So fast forward when people started discussing the return of Russia to Balkan geopolitics around the time of Crimea, that was a mischaracterization because Russia never really left. And it didn't leave because in the mid-2000s, it re-engaged in the region through a, a new channel, which was Russia's energy presence, Russia's energy projects. Um, those countries that consume gas in the region, they remained tied to Gazprom as the prime supplier. But in 2006, Russia put forward South Stream pipeline. That was the initial move uh, around the time that Ukraine had its first orange revolution 
and bypassing the Ukrainian grid became a priority for Russia. And, and Southeast Europe all of a sudden came on the map as a alternative transit route. And you said you saw a lot of action, uh, a lot of diplomacy around the, those energy projects with Bulgaria, but also with Serbia and with others, with Russia trying to re-engage and very much knocking on open doors because there are a lot of people and government and government-dependent businesses willing to engage with the Russians and to get some benefits along the way. So that was the first interesting moment. The second interesting moment, of course, is 2008 when Kosovo became independent, uh, the unilateral declaration of independence. And it was at that juncture when Serbia actually really reached back to the Russians. And it was not Alexander Vucic and the nationalists, it was the so-called pro-Western forces who at the time were in power in Belgrade, it was Tadic, President Boris Tadic and his people. Uh, they re- re-established the alliance with Russia, which had some bad baggage c- coming along because of the Milosevic connection. But they saw Russia as an ally in this battle to push against Kosovo's independence. So there were at least those two openings for Russia to re-engage. But what is essential to think about in this second phase under Putin 1 and Putin 2 is that Russia was not necessarily positioning itself as an anti-Western force. I mean, of course, it was taking a battle against the US and its allies over Kosovo. It was a legal battle, first of all, played out at the International Court of Justice. But there were five non-recognizing member states of the EU as well. So you couldn't say that it's necessarily a West versus Russia conflict played out in the Balkans at the time. And secondly, South Stream was not a Gazprom project only. It involves the Italian company, any, where the government has hefty influence over, over corporate governance, as well as French and, and German entities involved. So it was a joint project involving the Russians and European energy firms, along with the national companies of the countries uh, along the way. What really changed the game, I think, is the third term the Putin return to the Kremlin in 2012. And if you've noticed, Russia's positioning in the Balkans is always a function of the general atmosphere in relations between West and Russia. So it's not about how Russia reacts to local events that much, but how um, relations structure between the West and Russia. And Putin's return to power in 2012 was very much into the heading of reclaiming Russia's power and trying to prevent the Western powers from meddling inside Russia. That was a time of um, demonstrations in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Russia took a more confrontational stance, which became clear after after Crimea and the uh, Ukraine crisis. And you saw a number of pro-Russian governments uh, or Russia-friendly governments uh, declining to join the sanctions. That's Serbia, but also then Macedonia at the time, as well as, uh, as Turkey. You saw a ramping of uh, Russian disinformation and influence campaign. And you saw a lot of uh, Russian support for forces arguing against the West and pushing against NATO membership in a number of countries, as well as trying to attack the EU as well. So Russia became much more confrontational around 2014, 2015. That is the third stage. But it's, I think it's qualitatively different from both the Yeltsin era 
and also the early Putin era when uh, it was not a competition, it was not a rivalry. And we are very much in this third stage where Russia is willing to undermine the West, is taking sometimes risks and is positioning itself as, as a competitor rather than a, a partner. Before we move into the various issue areas, what I want to highlight, however, is that Russia's policy of confrontation has been very opportunistic. What happens is that you exploit weaknesses, resentment against the West within societies, or willingness by local elites to, to profit and to generate rents from economic projects, or... Um, neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor rivalries and, and and conflicts as the Kosovo issue. So you want to profit from those to make life difficult for NATO and the EU. But what Russia-Balkan's Balkan, policy isn't, it's clearly not an attempt to build some sort of alternative tier of institutions, bring those countries into a Russian sphere of influence because being the hegemon uh, is also associated with costs and Russia doesn't have the resources to keep the, the, the region together and to pay for the region. That was clearly the case in the Cold War when you had client states and Russia did carry the security but also the economic costs of keeping them in, in its uh, own camp. The, the, not Russia but the Soviet Union at the time. But you don't see this dynamic now. What you see is just obstructionism, putting a spanner in the works for the West, trying to exploit weaknesses, and maybe trying to materialize or to um, profit from the kind of influence you have as a bargaining chip visa with the West. If you sit in Moscow, this policy is fully warranted because they clearly consider that the West is meddling in their backyard. Uh, in the post-Soviet space, be it in Georgia and Moldova, in Ukraine for certain, and now uh, Lukashenko pushing this narrative that its protests in Belarus are driven by hostile Western powers. So if you see this paranoid uh, mindset that the West is up to no good and is trying to undermine you from within, it's fair game to for you to do the same in areas falling within the Western sphere of influence. So that's that's pretty much the Russian policy these days. Let me now move to security, the economy and society. In the security sphere, I think Serbia is the, is the one which, which matters because of Kosovo and also because of military and defense cooperation, including the sale of, of, of Russian weaponry. But Russia, again, is not a major factor in, in those countries because it's not very geographically distant. Where it really matters in, in the Balkans is those countries that are closer to its boundaries. In other words, Bulgaria, Romania. Because they're on the Black Sea. And when we discuss Balkans, it's usually the former Yugoslavia. But the Balkans is a broader array of countries. And those who are closer to the Russian boundaries and are exposed to, to Russia in that way um, are, very, are much more vulnerable to Russian hard power. Because if you look at the balance of power in the Black Sea after the annexation of Crimea, the conclusion is, is very clear that NATO is in defensive position. So the big headline is, yeah, Russia is a security player in the Western Balkans, but less so than it is in, in the East because of the Black Sea and the proximity proximity factor. And it's involved in Kosovo because of its UN Security Council seat, but not to the extent that it has a full veto on, on Serbian policy. 
Now we've seen how Vucic is forum shopping and he's turned to the White House, to, to the US as an alternative source, alternative mediator. But even before I would argue, uh, after the failure of this ICJ case uh, in 2010, what Serbia did was just to move the resolution of Kosovo, the normalization talks to the EU, isolating Russia. So Russia is occasionally brought in, but it doesn't have a seat at the table all the time. And it's up to the Serbians when Russia is brought into the picture or not. Russia is much more prevalent in Bosnia because of its institutional role in the Peace Implementation Council. That's the very short version of, of Russian security. It has some access, but where Russian hard power really, really makes a difference is those frontline states of ultimately Romania and Bulgaria, much less in the Western Balkans. In the economy, Russia is really important on oil and gas, but it, it's not a major trading and investment source as the EU. If you look at the region, two-thirds of trade goes back and forth to the core Europe. So Russia is simply not in the same league, but it has foothold in some critical sectors that have political implications. It doesn't mean that all the Russian companies that do business in the Balkans, say a small investor buying real estate in Montenegro, all the way to Lukoil, owning the, the, the biggest refinery in Bulgaria, but also in the post-communist Balkans, uh, in Burgas. It's not that they're extension of Russian foreign policy. They have their business objectives to pursue. They want to make money, not maximize the Kremlin power. But as many uh, specialists looking at Russia have argued, uh, if the push comes to shove and, and the CEO of Lukol gets a phone call from the Kremlin that he needs to perform some services for the motherland, I think that it's, it's a clear decision. These are resources that can be mobilized. In the Western Balkans, uh, people sometimes exaggerate Russian energy influence because they assume that it's like everywhere else in Eastern Europe. But if you look at places like Kosovo, Montenegro, even Bosnia, certainly Albania, they don't consume much gas or not no gas at all in the case of Kosovo and Montenegro. So Russia is not that embedded there as it is in Bulgaria or, or, or Serbia. So there is a huge regional variation from place to place when it comes to uh, Russian economic influence. Lastly, society. And this is one area that Russia has an advantage. Why? Because to project this kind of influence with information operations and pushing your narrative is very much low cost. It's not as if sending your paratroopers to Pristina or building a pipeline is a complicated venture and a costly one, one as well. Whereas establishing a subsidiary of the Sputnik agency in, in Serbia, having content in Serbo-Croatian, Bosnian, that is then freely available to all kinds of other news outlets. In the newscast of Sputnik Serbia is um, shared for free with a number of tens of regional stations. So if you drive around Serbia, you'll be sure to be listening to Sputnik News on the radio all the time. It doesn't cost a lot of money. You are preaching to the converted if you tell people in, in, against Serbia, but also half of Montenegrins that NATO is evil and that Serbs have been victimized by the Americans. You don't have to do a lot of convincing. There is this purchase for that. Now, COVID had provided some good opportunities for disinformation, all those conspiracy theories that link Bill Gates to 5G and uh, sinister plants. 
they typically originate from the West, but they are amplified by all kinds of Russian media operations. And they are very effective because they also work in societies, say in Romania, which is, has a fine tradition of uh, Russophobia, uh, that are not necessarily pro-Kremlin. But you, you might have the same nationalistic and nativist impulse and, and see conspiracies from elites, but also from, from the West. So Russia does need to convince people that Russia is noble. Uh, or Putin is a, is a hero. So there's some market for that. But all you have to do is just to play on this feeling of inferiority, of being threatened by the West and, and, and your values uh, and your principles being put at the risk. LGBT issues feature prominently, as you can imagine. And there's a huge market uh, in this place. And again, what it highlights is that demand factors and enabling conditions are as important. Russia wouldn't be less successful and by Russia here, I don't just mean the Kremlin, but also the constellation of various actors involved in this influence peddling. It won't be successful uh, if there was media literacy in the region, if there was transparency in media ownership, and if corruption was not such an issue. The Balkans and Southeast Europe as a whole uh, is a low-hanging fruit, and it doesn't take much to be influential if the situation on the ground is the way it is. So any Again, any policy to counter Russian influence, malign influence, should start first from enabling conditions, what makes Russia influential, and then consider what Russia's motives and, and means are and what to do about pushing back in the Kremlin. So let me stop here and take some questions. You've been listening to The Balkan Circle on the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit slavicsradio.com slash Balkan Circle.